Welcome to the Restoration Church weekly podcast. Please take a minute to subscribe to our YouTube channel and follow us on Facebook and Instagram. And be sure to download the Church Center app. This is the best way to stay connected and up to date with all that's happening at Restoration Church. Most importantly, we hope the following message will help draw you closer to Christ. Thanks for listening. Today we are in part three of our series titled Jesus for Grownups. If you have your Bibles with you, I'd encourage you to take them out right now, whether app form, hard copy form, whatever it may be. Join us in the Gospel of Luke, uh, starting at chapter four. We'll begin that in just a second. By the end of the series, you should have a good understanding of who Jesus is, what he accomplished, and really why it all matters. Not just in like the historical sense, in the biblical sense, but really why it matters for you. Why we say oftentimes that following Jesus will make your life better and it will make you better at life. Why, why we believe following Jesus is the most appropriate way, the most appropriate devotion of all of our lives. So hopefully it's not just a historical, biblical study for you, but it's really an application of why it matters for you. If you remember nothing, you should have this imprinted on your mind because we're going to come back to this every single week. Jesus is what humanity was supposed to be. We know because we experience it every day that our relationships are broken and this is across the gamut every single relationship whether it be with our money our spouse our children our neighbors our relationship with creatures our relationship with the earth our relationship with god all of these relationships are broken but for jesus they weren't broken he lived rightly he lived rightly and in right relationship with everyone and everything though not everyone lived in right relationship with him And as he calls us to follow him, he is calling us into a right relationship with all of these relationships as well. He is the model humanity. And so at the end of the day, our hope is that we would be drawn up into his love for us and that we would be more convinced to surrender more of our lives to Jesus so that we might become more rightly human. That we would let go of all of our selfish ways, that we would let go of all of our self-reigning hearts, and instead we would cling to his love for us. And in surrender, we would declare, Jesus, more of you, more of you, more of you. Less of me, less of me, less of me. Something I hope you understand is that your relationship with God will impact every relationship that you have. And so the closer you get to Jesus, the more healthier your relationship, relationships will be. And the really reason your relationships are strained is because one or more of you in that relationship is far from Jesus. My prayer for each one of you, including myself, because I can't do this for you. I said this last week. I cannot do this for you. It is something that you must choose to do. It is something you must get to the breaking point of. You must get to the bottom of yourself. You must hit rock bottom. You must get to that point where you acknowledge how sinful you are and how far from God you are. I cannot do this for you. But if you do it and you surrender to God, you will start to experience healthier relationships across the board. And so, Jesus is born. God's, uh, God's solution to the pain of the world and his plan for rescue from the, the sin that is enshrouded in the world is introduced in this infant child, Jesus. We talked about that two weeks ago in the, in the birth of Jesus narrative. And then, and then it jumps 30 years into the future to his baptism. And here Jesus is associating himself not with a God who is coming down and with fire in his eyes and a heavy fist of judgment. God is, uh, Jesus is identifying himself in this moment with, with sinners who are broken and, and, and needing of repentance themselves. So that, so that, as, as he dies upon the cross, that he could be a, an, an honest and accurate and full substitution for the human experience. 
And so that his life could actually be a ransom from sin. That is why his life lived perfectly is so important. Because as he dies upon the cross, his life becomes that ransom for sin to liberate us from our problem. Jesus is reliving the human vocation and taking its place of humanity. And so this is a really important part of the story. So early on in the story, you see his baptism, right? He's taking the place of humanity. And in the story we're going to talk about today, the temptation of Jesus, he's taking the place of humanity where humanity failed. And they did fail time and time again. Israel failed time and time again. It's an important part. Jesus is succeeding. But it's important to know that humanity failed because we were free to do so. We had a choice in the matter. We chose to rebel against God and abandon God's love for us. Jesus was also free to choose himself, but he continually chose God's love. And today we're going to talk about that struggle. Now, the way that the struggle is narrated seems to be a little odd at first. If you've ever read through the, the temptation narrative, Jesus, you know, wilderness wanderings and uh, the temptation narrative, it's a little odd. It's, it's an interaction between him and Satan at the end of 40 days of fasting. He hasn't eaten for 40 days. But it reveals a very simple truth that some find hard to believe, and and maybe you find yourself in in this pool of people. Maybe you find it hard to believe. Maybe you mock at it. Maybe you scoff at it. But some of you know this experience unendingly. We are in a spiritual war. There is a battle in the heavens that crosses over and intersects with all of our experiences all of the time. We are constantly being conflicted and up against a foe that wants to see us fail. Paul said that our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the powers of darkness and spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Peter said that this foe was like a lion who was on the prowl prowl looking to devour everything and anyone who comes across his path. John said that this foe is like a mighty dragon seeking to devour the earth. And Jesus said that this foe is the father of lies. And that really the only thing that he knows how to speak are lies. It's his native tongue, and that's all he's ever spoken from the beginning. He has been a murderer from the very beginning, and all he does is speak lies and more lies and more lies over people. We are in a spiritual war. You see that angst that you feel against your spouse? That irritation you're feeling towards your children? The lack of motivation that you have? That voice that says that you're done and you can't keep going? The anger that you have that's welling up inside of you because of what that person done, your inability to forgive because you feel like you're justified in not doing so. That voice in your head telling you to justify your actions and to blame someone else for the situation. That sense that your patience and your kindness tank has run empty and your self-control is about to go too. That belief that because life is comfortable, that you must be fine with God. That sense that you have no purpose, that sense that there is no justice, that belief that you are beyond reach, that you've done too many wrongs, you've committed too many sins, you're too filthy to be loved and accepted by God, that he doesn't love you, that he doesn't care for you. Our enemy is circling around you like a lion on the prowl looking to devour. That brokenness you're feeling, your broken heart, your loss, your sorrow, your enemy wants you to believe that you are alone, that nobody will care for you, that nobody cares And that there is no hope. And this pain that you're feeling, it's going to last forever. Our enemy is like a a prowling lion circling around us, looking to devour. It's a grinding, isn't it? Sometimes, for some of us, it's a grinding of our soul. And every single person who is far from God, we're like a chew toy in the mouth of a lion. We may think, 
we're okay. You know, we, we may think we're fine. The, the grinding deep within us, it's so faint that we don't even really notice it. And so we're fine, you know, like we can live our life. Our life is comfortable. We're fine. But for some of you, the grinding is constant and the grinding is loud and it is deafening. And there are shouts within your ears that you're not right and that you're not at peace and that there is no hope. And when you hear this voice, when you hear this voice, the devil spews his lies because the devil wants to keep you where you are. The devil wants to keep you stagnant and and neutral and apathetic to his reality. However he may do so, the devil wants to keep you where you are because that is a win for him. When you are not moving forward, when you are not progressing towards God, when you are stagnant, you are moving backwards. It's a slippery slope, friends, and you're sliding in the wrong direction. And what's so irritating is that the devil uses the same tricks over and over and over again. The devil is not all that clever. He just uses the same three lies to convince the world that we're okay, that we're fine, that we got a handle on it, that we don't need to reach out, we don't need to surrender, we don't need to see this brokenness as something that's a shout to us to, to get us moving in a, in a new direction. He used the same three lies over and over again. He has not had to invent new tricks. He just keeps telling us the same three lies, setting these same three traps. And we have taken the bait over and over and over again. We keep taking the bait. These three traps that the devil sets are like this. They go like this. Satisfaction is what you make of it. He's attacking our joy. Satisfaction is what you make of it. You have a void in you that aches and hurts within you, so do whatever you can do to fill it. There's a hole inside of you. Do whatever you can do to fill that void. The second lie. If you don't take it, you will be taken advantage of. Eat or be eaten, friends. Control your surroundings, your environment, and your circumstances because then you won't get hurt. And the last one, and this is the biggie. God does not love you. Because if he did, certainly that wouldn't have happened. And if God really loved you, then certainly your circumstances would be different. And if God didn't love you, then certainly your life would look differently than it does. Notice how at all of these three lies, you are at the center of them all. It's all about you in the end. It's all about your selfishness. It's all about your self-reigning heart is being affected and threatened. You got to know that these are the same three lies that he told Adam and Eve back in the Garden of Eden. These are the same three lies that he told Israel over and over again, and these are the same three lies that he is about to tell Jesus. These are the same lies that he tells us. But what makes our stories and abilities different than Adam and Eve's, what makes our abilities and our stories different than the people of Israel even who failed over and over and over again as they were told these lies, they succumbed to these lies over and over and over again, what makes each of our stories different if we've trusted in Christ is that Christ has given us a power. Christ has enabled us with with a power, with his spirit to resist these lies. Jesus didn't take the bait. Jesus didn't believe the lies, and therefore because of what Christ accomplished on the cross and his resurrection, that spirit and that strength has been entrusted to us as well, friends. We do not have to let sin be our master. We don't. There is a power within you. If you have trusted in Christ, there is a power within you to resist these lies, to say no to the devil's schemes over you. Let's turn to Luke's gospel to learn what Jesus did in these moments of greatest weakness to resist and to win. 
Here's what we learn in verse 1 of chapter 4 of Luke. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. So this whole scene is, is intended to illustrate Jesus' role as representative humanity. I kind of mentioned that already. Jesus is going to succeed where Adam and Eve and Israel failed. So just like Israel, Jesus crosses through the water, if you guys remember that Exodus story, and then eventually as they're going into the Promised Land, they cross over the Jordan River. It's exactly what Jesus is doing here. He's modeling the story of Israel. He's crossing over the Jordan. And then for 40 years, the Israelites were tempted in the wilderness. Now for 40 days, Jesus is going to be tempted in the wilderness. Jesus is showing how he is retelling the story of Israel. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them, he was hungry. Anybody ever fasted for 40 days? You would be hungry. 21 to 40 days without food, it's possible. It's not recommended, by the way. The point was the parallel, though, and to get Jesus to the point of utter weakness. Imagine how hungry you would be at the end of 40 days of having not eaten. By the end of 40 days, Jesus was basically on his deathbed, as anybody would have been. He was as low as he could possibly go, and we know this because once hunger pains begin again after a fast like this, it's a sign of that starvation is kicking in. And you are near death. He is weak, he is low, he wants it to stop, his body is beginning to shut down, his organs are beginning to fail, he is faint, he is dizzy, he's at his weakest point, and it's here that the devil, that the devil begins to speak. It's at our weakest points that the devil begins to speak. The devil does most of his work in the valleys. And you know this because you've experienced it. The devil does most of his work in the valleys. It's when you're already irritated that you burst into anger. It's when you're already lonely that you fall into lust. It's when you're already sad that you spiral into despair. It's when your self-image is already low that gluttony seems of no consequence. The devil does most of his work in the valleys. It's not always the case, but a wounded animal is always easier to hunt than a healthy animal. And this is important, right? It's not that Jesus was just an emotional superhuman, that he was stoic and unaffected by all of the same challenges. Remember, the point is that he is representing us. He is feeling exactly what we feel. He is at his lowest point. He is at his weakest point. Temptation was at his strongest to buy into these lies, and yet he resisted them. At his lowest point, he's alone, he's hurting on the brink of death. And here, the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, well, tell the stone to become bread. Come on, Jesus, you're hungry. Eat the food. What are you trying to prove out here in the desert all by yourself? I mean, come on, no one's going to see you do it, Jesus. Nobody's going to see you. You're out here by yourself. No one's going to see you eat the bread. It's not that big of a deal. Come on, take a little. You have a longing. You're hungry. You're not satisfied. You're not content. There is a hole in you that needs to be filled, and so fill it. But what he's really doing is playing on this age-old lie that satisfaction is what you make of it. Because hunger is one of those things that never leaves us. Have you ever experienced that? Man, it would be nice with the price of groceries, wouldn't it be? You eat breakfast in the morning, and then by lunchtime, what happens? You're hungry again. What's up with that? Man, it would be nice. You keep filling that tank. Consume more, consume more, consume more. Maybe if you ate some more, maybe if you had some more, maybe if you had the latest and the greatest and the shiniest and the one that's the most expensive, then you wouldn't be hungry. Then you would be satisfied. Then you would be happy. But Jesus knew some important truths. I think we know these truths as well if we're willing to admit it. One of them is this. Everything I have and own and possess and claim as mine is destined to fade, break, rot, or die. 
the bread he wants me to take, you know, will eventually grow mold and rot and I'll be hungry again. I mean, think about it. Your house, your car, possessions, job, your money, even your children, even your spouse, and the very life that you have been entrusted with are all destined to either fade, break, rot, or die. So, what's the lesson? Don't hold to any of this too tightly. For those of you who are married or ever hope to be married, our culture will tell you to make the other person your other half. You guys ever heard that before? She is my other half. She completes me. We've heard things like this. You know that codependency, excessive reliance on another for approval and one sense of self is alive and well and it is celebrated in our language and in our culture? It's one of the main reasons there are so many unhealthy relationships in our world. If Emily is my other half, somehow then, without her, I am only half a person. Jerry McGuire has convinced us that this is romantic, by the way. That if we storm into a room and confess that you completely complete me, then you should all just swoon over that. Do you, can I get a swoon from you? Aww. No, stop that. That's not romantic, okay? That's not good. That's not healthy. Shame on you. Why are you doing that? No. That's not good. That's not healthy. All this does is say, I am going to hold on to you with everything I have because without you in my life, my life doesn't make sense. And we watched a few movies the other day, so that is the essential theme of the movies. Man, man named Man Called Otto, right? That's, that's essentially the storyline of that movie. Without you in my life, my life doesn't work. Without you in my life, I'd rather be dead. Hello, Romeo and Juliet. We think it's romantic, but really it's very destructive. But ladies and gentlemen, I want you to think about something. When our core and primary devotion is to another rather than God, we turn the other into a God. And idolatry is always self-serving. So codependency is really just about fulfilling my own insecurities. I'm not doing this for my spouse. I'm doing it for me. I'm doing it to fill some void in my own soul. I mean, Emily talked about this all the time. And we're like, you know what? Yeah, Emily, I love you. You are so important in my life. I need you in my life, but I don't need you in my life. And if you were to die, I would be very, very heartbroken, very, very sad. And we'd lose a ton, but my life would go on. That's how our romantic dinners go. That's the conversations we have at dinner. <laughs> no, thank you. That's, that's swoon-worthy. Yeah, that's good. When our core and primary devotion is to God, though, not only do we know that this life isn't the end, but it makes us whole and informs all of our service of the other. And so, ladies, wouldn't you rather have a man that is secure in who he is and that serves you and your family and your community relentlessly? Isn't that more romantic? And you're like, yeah, but some flowers would be nice every now and then. And you're like, yeah, but, you know, a candlelit dinner would be nice every now and then. You should sign up for the marriage course, by the way, if that's the case. Uh, you're like, yeah, but, but, you know, a surprise would be nice every now and then. And here's, here's my encouragement to you. Tell him how you're feeling. Communicate how you are feeling. Because a man who is secure in his identity in Christ... A man who is secure in his identity in God will humble himself and be humble enough to hear you. And he will want that for you as well because he loves you. But the world doesn't help us in our search for contentment. Marketing, if you think about marketing, it exists for the point to point out the hole in you and then to give you a temporary option to fill it. That is the goal of marketing. It's to make you feel discontent with what you have. 
That's the point, right? Marketing commercials exist to point out the holes in you and then to direct you to a temporary fix. Marketing exists to make you feel bad about where you are in life and to, and to, to run through their product for a quick temporary fix. The reason you get catalogs in the mail is that. The reason there are commercials on the television is that. The reason ads pop up to you specific to your conversations and your desires and your searches is to make you feel discontent and to provide you for a temporary solution to an eternal problem. And so we buy the latest phone, and for a while we feel on the top of the world until it breaks or the next one comes out. And we buy the clothes, and for a while our self-esteem is improved until... The styles change, or, you know, they wore out. And then we buy the car, but then it rusts and breaks and becomes last year's model, and we think, if only I had more. Well, if only I had the latest. If only I had more money, then I'd be happy. If only I had a different job. If only I was married to that person. If only I lived in that neighborhood, then I'd be satisfied. And then what happens, right? The the more arrives... And the latest arrives, and the change happens, and we realize that it was just a temporary fix to an eternal problem. And that wherever I go, and whatever I do, I carry me with me into that situation, into that circumstance. And so maybe the problem isn't the external. Maybe the problem is something internal to who I am. Marketing's goal is to keep us anxious. So if you find yourself often anxious, one of the things I would really encourage you to do is stop watching so much television, stop scrolling social media, stop taking the bait. Because our anxiety to fill this temporary void will drive us to spend everything beyond and everything that we make, which leaves us in crazy amounts of debt, which in turn leaves us with no financial margin. I have a, this, this circle diagram I've used oftentimes. I think we have a slide for it here. It looks like this, right? We start with an anxiety that turns us towards, towards uh, spending everything that we have, which leaves us in debt and no financial margin. Of course, then that causes us to have even more anxiety, right? It's a crazy, crazy cycle, but isn't this how most Americans live? Maybe this including most of us. It's exactly where the devil wants to keep you, searching after a solution to that void. And if we could call the devil the liar that he is, we may discover a new way forward. We may discover that our spending habits are actually a self-control issue and that our debt is actually a contentment issue and that our lack of financial margin is actually a discipline issue and that our anxiety, yes, is actually a spiritual issue. But it all started because you tried to solve an eternal problem with a temporary solution. You tried to solve a spiritual problem with a physical solution. You tried to fill an infinite hole with a few shovelfuls of earthly goods. And Jesus says, don't do it. Don't, don't take the bait. Don't buy into the lie. He tells the devil that food won't actually satisfy him. Food will not bring me joy. Food will not fill me. Jesus responded to the devil. It is written, man shall not live on bread alone. He's actually quoting Deuteronomy here. He's going to quote Deuteronomy, the same passage of Deuteronomy, three times in response to the devil. Bread is a temporary solution to a temporary problem, but my life is lived by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Bread won't fill me, but God will fill me, he is saying. My identity cannot be in anything temporal. My identity can only be found in God. My identity cannot be found in the amount of money I make or the bread that is provided me or any try, anything that I try to fill this void in me with. 
only God will fill the void within me. You see, an identity based in worldly things will always fail me and never truly satisfy me, but an identity found in God will sustain me forever. See, some of you are beating your head, some of you are beating your heart, some of you are beating your marriage and your household against your attempts at finding purpose and satisfaction in temporary things that are destined to fail you. It's going to start sounding a little cliche here, my friends, but your solution is more of Jesus, less of yourself. Start pulling out those things that you've tried to fill the the void of your identity with and start putting God into that mix and you will find a solution to your problems. So Jesus wins round number one. So the devil tries trap number two. The devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor. It has been given to me and I give it to anyone I want. If you worship me, it will all be yours. Here he sets Jesus up for the second trap by suggesting that Jesus merely takes what is his to take. Jesus, take what is naturally yours. You're the king of the world. Take it. You're the king. You're the owner. Satan knows that he has power and authority were commandeered from Adam and Eve, that he actually has no right and rule to reign. So he suggests Jesus merely take it. He offers Jesus what is rightfully Jesus to begin with. Because, and isn't this the second lie, that if we don't take it, control, power, ownership, a stance, then we'll be taken advantage of? Aren't we told to control our surroundings, your environment and your circumstances, because then you won't get hurt and then you will get what you want? Yeah, 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 others certainly will get hurt, but I won't get hurt, and so I should take what is good for me, and I don't care how it affects other people. Think of the family with several children, and you've just had a nice family meal together, and then the dessert comes out, the cookie tray comes out. And you have five kids sitting around the table, but there's only three cookies. I don't know what kind of mean parents would do such a thing, but what happens, right? They start fighting and clawing at the cookies for the dinner. Now, that's just a simple illustration, but now take that same principle of clawing and fighting over resources, limited resources, and apply it to marriages and apply it to households. It's no longer about a cookie. It's now about our livelihood, and now we're self-protecting out of principle, and now we're climbing social ladders, and when you climb social ladders... You're climbing over other people to get to the position that you want to be in. And the devil is like, well, don't you want to be the taker and not the taken advantage of? Because you can't do both. And and of course, we're all going to say, of course, I want to be the taker. Of course, I want to have and not go without. We want to climb, not fall back. And so we're selfish and we're self-serving and we're self-defending and we're self-protecting and we're self-promoting. And we put ourselves at the center and we work hard to make life rotate around our needs and our wants. And Jesus says, no, that's not how I designed humans to function. I designed you to function in love for others, to die to your self-interest, to die to your self-promotion, to die to these things so that others might experience life. I designed you to to live a life in love. And and, and if you are far from God, if, if you are far living a life from love then you're going to hurt i've designed that the human person to experience this when you're far from love you hurt and you also hurt others and i know you've manipulated humans into thinking living for themselves is ideal i know you've twisted their minds into believing a selfish lie will lead them to happiness but it is a lie he would tell the devil and so jesus answered it is written worship the lord your god and serve him only he again quotes scripture deuteronomy 6 which is in the context of the Shema, or where Jesus eventually takes the greatest commandment from. You are to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. 
And so know, Satan, the proper way to live is in love for God and love for others. This is true worship, laying down one's life for the betterment of others, coming up underneath others in service of them, in submission of them, giving, not taking, bending, not being stubborn or rigid. That is the life that I've designed humanity to live. And so Jesus wins round number two. So the devil attempts trap number three. This time, seeing how Jesus combated him with scripture, the devil turns to scripture as well to fight back towards Jesus. Here's what the devil says. The devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, he will command the angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Come on, Jesus, you keep quoting scripture at me. If you really believe God and his word, if you really trusted what God would said, then do what the word says. Then act on it. Throw yourself off of this cliff. It's only a 450 foot drop. Plenty of time for God's angels to catch you. If you really believe God's word, that's what you keep quoting to me. If you really believe God's word, then do what God's word says. But the absurdity of the scenario is really the point here. Standing at that height, looking down and what's going on through is, is, is what's going on through all of our minds, right? Can, can God be trusted? And you, you stood, you've stood in front of all sorts of scenarios throughout your life. And, and what keeps going through your mind, right, as a follower of Jesus? Can God really be trusted? Is God's word true? Is God actually for me? Does God love me? God, will God protect me? Satan brought him to a point of asking these very important questions, the question that we all ask from time to time. And then when we ask these questions, so often our minds begin to spiral like, yeah, but you know, he was, he was a faithful follower of Jesus and it didn't seem like God protected him. You know, we, we, we prayed and we prayed and we prayed and yet he still died. We cried for justice. We longed for justice and, and it still didn't happen. God didn't seem to help him. We begged and pleaded and he was such a good man and cancer didn't go away. Maybe God isn't good. Maybe God doesn't care. Maybe God isn't capable. Maybe God isn't for me. Maybe God doesn't love me. Maybe God doesn't actually want our good. When we go down this avenue, every time something doesn't go our way, we entertain these thoughts at every circumstance that seems painful. But Jesus said, it is said, do not put the Lord your God to the test. He again quotes from Deuteronomy 6. Again, the context is the Shema. It's the place where Jesus eventually pulls the greatest commandment from, to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And so why shouldn't we test God? Because we are in a trusting relationship with God. And if we are to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, why should we do that? Because we are responding to God's love for us. And I don't know why bad things happen. I don't know why you prayed and prayed and prayed and it didn't change the circumstance. I don't know why you cried and cried and cried and yet justice never found its way into your situation. But I do know what the answer cannot be. The answer cannot be that God does not love you. The answer cannot be that God is not for you. It cannot be that God is not with you. It cannot be that God is not on your side and that he is not capable to carry you. You see, Jesus Christ who is God in the flesh. The life he lived and the death he died tells us what the answer cannot be. It cannot be that God does not love us, that he is not for us, or that he is not concerned for our situation. 
Because in all of these, we know that Jesus Christ laid down his life for those who were sinners. And that Jesus Christ proves his love for us while dying for us, even while we were still sinners. My friends, maybe, maybe the reason that our relationships are broken is, is not God's fault. Maybe so oftentimes it's our fault. Maybe, maybe we're a major player in the reason why our marriage is the way it is. Maybe we're a major player in the way the world is the way it is. Maybe we're a major player in the way our community is the way it is. And if we don't have eyes to see that, then we'll never humbly submit ourselves to the God who loves us, despite the fact that we are contributing constantly to the chaos that we experience. In all of these lies, the devil is trying to keep us in the subjective realm. He wants to keep you in the realm of your feelings, not in the realm of truth. This moment isn't fulfilling you, so God can't fulfill you either. In this moment, you have to go without, then you'll never have. If this moment is painful, then God must not love you. I'm going to invite the band forward. We're going to reflect on some of these thoughts as we sing one final song together this morning. So the the question then is, how did Jesus fight the lies? Well, he fought it with objective truth. It wasn't, you know, the truth of the postmodern that suggests whatever is true for you can be true of you. Man, I had this whole long section on the the my truth movement. How many have ever heard that phrase, it's my truth? Well, what's your truth? Oh man, I don't know. I cut it out for your sake this morning. But this is not the truth of the subjective postmodern that says whatever is true for you can be true for you that whatever is true for you depends on where you're at in life and what you're experiencing that truth only comes when it's convenient you know like subject objective truth only comes when it's convenient it's rather the truth of god's self-revelation this is the truth of god's authority as found in scripture it's the truth that points us back to ultimate objective reality the way that the universe is the word of god paul pointed out is the only offensive weapon that we are going to have and jesus time and time again comes back to god's self-revelation in god's word it's what jesus perfectly embodied it's god's promises declared for us it's the story of his redemption the story of his love covering even sinners and enemies it's the story of genuine humanity lived in service and even death for others it's the story of satisfaction for thirsty souls and it's here within the pages of scripture And without an intimate knowledge of God's word, our sword and only offensive weapon, it's like a boxer in the ring with his arms tied behind his back. We're told told to fight this fight, but we don't have any offense. And how are you going to do in that fight? You're going to get pummeled. You're going to get beaten to a pulp. The fight is happening whether we realize it or not. We get caught up in this war. We are soldiers in this war, in this spiritual battle. We're in the ring, and the lies are constant. So my friends, how are you going to fight? Are you going to fight with the subjective truth? That the devil wants to keep you thinking it? Or are you going to fight with the objective truth of God's word? The objective truth of his promises over you. The objective truth of, of his story, of his redemption, of his satisfaction, of identity in him over you. And so, my friends, I implore you to know God's word better. For the most part, even Christians, this is true of Christians, even America, Christians, Americans are biblically illiterate for the most part. We follow Jesus, but we know very little about God's word. We know very few of his promises. We know very little of what God's word actually says. And that's a problem. 
And so we've done a lot to try to help you. We've done a lot here at Restoration to try to build you up into Christ's image to help you be an ardent follower of Jesus. And there are a lot of opportunities that are going to be starting um, in two weeks. The first is our discipleship pathway. If you have never taken starting point, I implore you to take starting point. To start journeying through our discipleship pathway, to start venturing through the, the life of Jesus. After you take starting point, which is really a foundation for the faith, you would venture into a story about a story, part one, which is the beginning of three parts where you will walk through the story of Scripture to learn those promises, to learn those objective truths, to learn who God is and how he is speaking over you and the story that he wants to involve you in. And beyond that, if you haven't gotten into a group, I would really encourage you to get into a group. These groups are going to be starting um, after next week's sermon. These are four weeks of house groups that we are encouraging everybody to get involved in. There's still a number of spots open. They're open every, almost every night of the week. So I would really encourage you to get plugged into a community of people who are going to delve into the story of Jesus together. You're also going to get some good food out of it and get some good friends out of it as well. So I'd really, really encourage you. Again, you can sign up for all of these things through the Church Center app or on our website. really, really encourage you to do that. Because here's why knowing God's Word is so important. Here's why being committed daily to following Jesus is so important. Here's what we're told in verse 13. When the devil had finished all of his tempting, he left until an opportune time. It's not like, hey, Jesus was victorious. He, he, he you know, fought off three lies of the evil one. And now, good, the devil is no longer going to tempt Jesus. Oh, good, you resisted the devil today. Guess what? He's coming back tomorrow. He resisted him, but he was only resisted him until an opportune time. And that opportune time is going to come at your most weakest point. My friend, just because you won one victory does not mean that he is not going to try again. And if you do not know God's word, if you are not ardently following Jesus, my friends, you will, won't have the weapons to fight with. And so it is our encouragement and our challenge to you to know the word of God to know his redemptive story, to become like Christ, so that as the devil comes to tempt you as well, you will have the victory of Christ to stand on.